0: shall find their bodies raised and renewed as quickly as those who are alive when the trumpet sounds. Above all, miracles of grace will be revealed. We shall see some in heaven who we never expected would have been saved at all. The confusion of tongues shall at length be reversed and done away. The assembled multitude will cry with one heart and in one language, What hath God wrought? Numbers 23, verse 23. See, this gathering shall be a humbling one. It shall make an end of bigotry and narrow-mindedness forever. The Christians of one denomination shall find themselves side by side with those of another denomination. If they would not tolerate them on earth, they will be obliged to tolerate them in heaven. Churchmen and dissenters who will neither pray together nor worship together now will discover to their shame that they must praise together hereafter to all eternity. The very people who will not receive us at their ordinances now and keep us back from their table will be obliged to acknowledge us before our Master's face and to let us sit down by their side. Never will the world have seen such a complete overthrow of sectarianism, party spirit, unbrotherliness, religious jealousy and religious pride. At last, we shall all be completely clothed with humility. First Peter 5 verse 5 This mighty, wonderful gathering together is the gathering which ought to be often in men's thoughts. It deserves consideration. It demands attention. Gatherings of other kinds are incessantly occupying our minds. Political gatherings, scientific gatherings, gatherings for pleasure, gatherings for gain. But the hour comes and will soon be heard when gatherings of this kind will be completely forgotten. One thought alone will swallow up Men's minds, that thought will be, shall I be gathered with Christ's people into a place of safety and honor, or be left behind to everlasting woe? Let us take care that we are not left behind. 2. Why is this gathering together of true Christians a thing to be desired? Let us try to get an answer to that question. Paul evidently thought that the gathering at the last day was a cheering object which Christians ought to keep before their eyes. He classes it with that second coming of our Lord, which, he says elsewhere, believers love and long for. He exalts it in the distant horizon as one of those good things to come, which should animate the faith of every pilgrim in the narrow way. Not only, he seems to say, will each servant of God have rest and a kingdom and a crown, he will have besides a happy gathering together. Now, where is the peculiar blessedness of this gathering? Why is it a thing that we ought to look forward to with joy and expect with pleasure? Let us see. 1. For one thing, the gathering together of all true Christians will be a state of things totally unlike their present condition. To be scattered and not gathered seems the rule of man's existence now. Of all the millions who are annually born into the world, how few continue together till they die. Children who draw their first breath under the same roof and play by the same fireside are sure to be separated as they grow up and to draw their last breath far distant from one another. The same law applies to the people of God. They are spread abroad like salt, one in one place and one in another, and never allowed to continue long side by side. It is doubtless good for the world that it is so. Our town would be a very dark place at night if all the lighted candles were crowded together into one room, but good as it is for the world, it is no small trial to believers. Many a day they feel desolate and alone, many a day they long for a little more communion with their brethren and a little more companionship with those who love the Lord. Well, They may look forward with hope and comfort. The hour is coming when they shall have no lack of companions. Let them lift up their heads and rejoice. There will be a gathering together by and by. Two, or another thing, the gathering together of all true Christians will be an assembly entirely of one mind. There are no such assemblies now. Mixture, hypocrisy, and false profession, creep in everywhere. Wherever there is wheat, there are sure to be tares. Wherever there are good fish, there are sure to be bad. Wherever there are wise virgins, there are sure to be foolish. There is no such thing as a perfect church now. There is a Judas Iscariot at every communion table, Anadimus, in every apostolic company, and wherever the sons of God come together, Satan is sure to appear among them. Job 1, verse 6. But all this shall come to an end one day. Our Lord shall at length present to the Father a perfect church, having neither spot, nor wrinkle, nor any such thing. Ephesians 5, 27. How glorious such a church will be! To meet with half a dozen believers together now is a rare event in a Christian's year, and one that cheers him like a sunshiny day in winter. It makes him feel his heart burn within him as the disciples felt on the way to Emmaus. But how much more joyful will it be to meet a multitude that no man can number, To find, too, that all we meet are at last of one opinion and one judgment and see eye to eye. To discover that all our miserable controversies are buried forever and that Calvinists no longer hate Armenians nor Armenians Calvinists. Churchmen no longer quarrel with dissenters nor dissenters with churchmen. To join a company of Christians in which there is neither jarring, squabbling, nor discord. Every man's grace is fully developed, and every man's besetting sins dropped off like beech leaves in spring. All this will be happiness indeed. No wonder that St. Paul bids us look forward. 3. For another thing... The gathering together of true Christians will be a meeting at which none shall be absent. The weakest lamb shall not be left behind in the wilderness. The youngest babe that ever drew breath shall not be overlooked or forgotten. We shall once more see our beloved friends and relatives who fell asleep in Christ and left us in sorrow and tears, better, brighter, more beautiful more pleasant than ever we found them on earth. We shall hold communion with all the saints of God who have fought the good fight before us from the beginning of the world to the end, patriarchs and prophets, apostles and fathers, martyrs and missionaries, reformers and puritans, all the host of God's elect shall be there. If to read their words and works, has been pleasant. how much better shall it be to see them? If to hear of them and be stirred by their example has been useful, how much more delightful to talk with them and ask them questions, to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and hear how they kept the faith without any Bible, to converse with Moses and Samuel and David and Isaiah and Daniel, And hear how they could believe in a Christ yet to come. To converse with Peter and Paul and Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And listen to their wondrous tale of what their master did for them. All this will be sweet indeed. No wonder St. Paul bids us look forward. For, in the last place. The gathering of all true Christians shall be a meeting without a parting. There are no such meetings now. We seem to live in an endless hurry and can hardly sit down and take breath before we are off again. Goodbye treads on the heels of how do you do. The cares of this world, the necessary duties of life, the demands of our families, the work of our various stations and callings. All these things appear to eat up our days and to make it impossible to have long, quiet times of communion with God's people. But blessed be God, it shall not always be so. The hour cometh and shall soon be here, when goodbye and farewell shall be words that are laid aside and buried forever when we meet in a world where the former things have passed away, where there is no more sin and no more sorrow, no more poverty and no more money, no more work of body or work of brains, no more need of anxiety for families, no more sickness, no more pain, no more old age, no more death, no more change, when we meet in that endless state of being, calm and restful and unhurried. Who can tell what the blessedness of the change will be? I cannot wonder that St. Paul bids us look up and look forward. I lay these things before all who read this paper and ask their serious attention to them. If I know anything of a Christian's experience, I am sure they contain food for reflection. This, at least, I say confidently, the man who sees nothing much in the second coming of Christ and the public gathering of Christ's people, nothing happy, nothing joyful, nothing pleasant, nothing desirable, such a man may well doubt whether he himself is a true Christian and has got any grace at all. One, I ask you a plain question. Do not turn away from it and refuse to look it in the face, shall you be gathered by the angels into God's home when the Lord returns, or shall you be left behind? One thing at any rate is very certain. There will only be two parties of mankind at the last great day, those who are on the right hand of Christ and those who are on the left those who are counted righteous, and those who are wicked, those who are safe in the ark, and those who are outside, those who are gathered like wheat into God's barn, and those who are left behind like tears to be burned. Now, what will your portion be? Perhaps you do not know yet. You cannot say. You are not sure. You hope the best. You trust it will be all right at last, but you won't undertake to give an opinion. Well, I only hope you will never rest till you do know. The Bible will tell you plainly who are they that will be gathered. Your own heart, if you deal honestly, will tell you whether you are one of the number. Rest not. Rest not till you know. How men can stand the partings and separations of this life if they have no hope of anything better? How they can bear to say goodbye to sons and daughters and launch them on the troublesome waves of this world if they have no expectation of a safe gathering in Christ at last? How they can part with beloved members of their families and let them journey forth to the other side of the globe not knowing if they shall ever meet happily in this life or a life to come. How all this can be completely baffles my understanding. I can only suppose that the many never think, never consider, never look forward. Once that a man begin to think, and he will never be satisfied till he has found Christ and is safe. 2. I offer you a plain means of testing your own soul's condition if you want to know your own chance of being gathered into God's home. Ask yourself what kind of gatherings you like best here upon earth. Ask yourself whether you really love the assembling together of God's people. How could that man enjoy the meeting of true Christians in heaven? Who takes no pleasure in meeting two Christians on earth? How can that heart, which is wholly set on balls and races and feasts and amusements and worldly assemblies, and thinks earthly worship a weariness? How can such a heart be in tune for the company of saints and saints alone? The thing is impossible. It cannot be. Never, never. Let it be forgotten that our tastes on earth are a sure evidence of the state of our hearts, and the state of our hearts here is a sure indication of our position hereafter. Heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. He that hopes to be gathered with saints in heaven while he only loves the gathering of sinners on earth is deceiving himself. If he lives and dies in that state of mind, he will find at last that he had better never have been born. 3. If you are a true Christian, I exhort you to be often looking forward. Your good things are yet to come, your redemption draweth nigh. The night is far spent, the day is at hand, yet a little time. And he whom you love and believe on will come and will not tarry. When he comes, he will bring his dead saints with him and change his living ones. Look forward. There is a gathering together yet to come. The morning after a shipwreck is a sorrowful time. The joy of half drowned survivors who have safely reached the land is often sadly marred by the recollection of shipmates who have sunk to rise no more. There will be no such sorrow when believers gather together round the throne of the Lamb. Not one of the ship's company shall be found absent, some on boards and some on broken pieces of the ship. All will get safe to shore at last. Acts 27.44 The great waters and raging waves shall swallow none of God's elect. When the sun rises, they shall be seen all safe and gathered together. Even the day after a great victory is a sorrowful time. The triumphant feelings of the conquerors are often mingled with bitter regrets for those who fell in action and died on the field. The list of killed, wounded, and missing breaks many a heart, fills many a home with mourning, and brings many a grey head sorrowing to the grave. The great Duke of Wellington often said, There was but one thing worse than a victory, and that was a defeat. But thanks be to God, there will be no such sorrow in heaven. The soldiers of the great captain of our salvation shall all answer to their names at last. The muster roll shall be as complete after the battle as it was before. Not one believer shall be missing in the great gathering together. Does Christmas, for instance, bring with it sorrowful feelings and painful associations? Do tears rise unbidden in your eyes when you mark the empty places round the fireside? Do grave thoughts come sweeping over your mind, even in the midst of your children's mirth, when you recollect the dear old faces and much-loved voices of some that sleep in the churchyard? Well, look up and look forward. The time is short. The world is growing old. The coming of the Lord draweth nigh. There is yet to be a meeting without parting and a gathering without separation. Those believers whom you laid in the grave with many tears are in good keeping. You will yet see them again with joy. Look up. I say once more, lay hold by faith on the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together unto Him. Believe it. Think of it. Rest on it. It is all true. Do you feel lonely and desolate as every December comes round? Do you find few to pray with, few to praise with, few to open your heart to, few to exchange experience with? Do you learn increasingly that heaven is becoming every year more full and earth more empty? Well, it is an old story. You are only drinking a cup which myriads have drunk before. Look up and look forward. The lonely time will soon be past and over. You will have company enough by and by. When you wake up after your Lord's likeness, you shall be satisfied. Psalm 17, 15 Yet a little while, and you shall see a congregation that shall never break up. And a Sabbath that shall never end. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together unto him shall make amends for all. Chapter 20 The Great Separation Whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garden. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Matthew 3 verse 12. The verse of scripture which is now before our eyes. Contains words which were spoken by John the Baptist. They are a prophecy about our Lord Jesus Christ. And a prophecy which has not yet been fulfilled. They are a prophecy which we shall all see fulfilled one day, and God alone knows how soon. I invite every reader of this paper to consider seriously the great truths which this verse contains. I invite you to give me your attention while I unfold them and set them before you in order. Who knows but this text may prove a word in season to your soul. Who knows but this text may may help to make this day the happiest day in your life. One, let me show in the first place, the two great classes into which mankind may be divided. There are only two classes of people in the world in the sight of God, and both are mentioned in the text, which begins this paper. There are those who are called the wheat, and there are those who are called the chaff. Viewed with the eye of man, the earth contains many different sorts of inhabitants. Viewed with the eye of God, it only contains two. Man's eye looks at the outward appearance. This is all he thinks of. The eye of God looks at the heart. This is the only part of which he takes any account. And tried by the state of their hearts, There are but two classes into which people can be divided. Either they are wheat or they are chaff. Who are the wheat in the world? This is a point which demands special consideration. The wheat means all men and women who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, all who are led by the Holy Spirit, all who have felt themselves sinners and Fled for refuge to the salvation offered in the gospel. All who love the Lord Jesus and live to the Lord Jesus and serve the Lord Jesus. All who have taken Christ for their only confidence and the Bible for their only guide and regard sin as their deadliest enemy and look to heaven as their only home. All such of every church, name, nation, people and tongue of every rank, station, condition, and degree. All such are God's feet. Show me a people of this kind anywhere, and I know what they are. I know not that they and I may agree in all particulars, but I see in them the handiwork of the King of kings, and I ask no more. I know not whence they came and where they found their religion, but I know where they are going. And that is enough for me. They are the children of my Father in heaven. They are part of His wheat. All such, though sinful and vile and unworthy in their own eyes, are the precious part of mankind. They are the sons and daughters of God the Father. They are the delight of God the Son. They are the habitation of God the Spirit. The Father beholds no iniquity in them. They are the members of His dear Son's mystical body. In Him He sees them and is well pleased. The Lord Jesus discerns in them the fruit of His own travail and work upon the cross and is well satisfied. The Holy Ghost regards them as spiritual temples which He Himself has reared and rejoices over them. In a word, they are the wheat of the earth. Who are the chaff in the world? This again is a point which demands special attention. The chaff means all men and women who have no saving faith in Christ and no sanctification of the Spirit, whosoever they may be. Some of them perhaps are infidels and some are formal Christians, some are sneering Sadducees and some self-righteous Pharisees. Some of them make a point of keeping up a kind of Sunday religion and others are utterly careless of everything except their own pleasure and the world. But all alike who have the two great marks already mentioned, no faith and no sanctification, all such are chaff From pain and Voltaire to the dead churchmen who can think of nothing but outward ceremonies, from Julian and Porphyry, to the unconverted admirer of sermons in the present day, all all are standing in one rank before God, all, all are tough They bring no glory to God the Father, they honor not the Son, and so do not honor the Father that sent Him, John 5.23. They neglect that mighty salvation which countless millions of angels admire. They disobey that word which was graciously written for their learning. They listen not to the voice of Him who condescended to leave heaven and die for their sins. They pay no tribute of service and affection to Him who gave them life and breath and all things. And therefore God takes no pleasure in them. He pities them, but He reckons them no better than chaff. Yes, you may have rare intellectual gifts and high mental attainments. You may sway kingdoms by your counsel, move millions by your pen, or keep crowds and breathless attention by your tongue. But if you have never submitted yourself to the yoke of Christ, and never honored His gospel, By heartfelt reception of it, you are nothing in His sight. Natural gifts without grace are like a row of ciphers without an unit before them. They look big, but they are of no value. The meanest insect that crawls is a nobler being than you are. It fills its place in creation and glorifies its maker with all its power, and you do not. You do not honor God with your heart and will and intellect and members, which are all His. You invert His order and arrangement and live as if time was of more importance than eternity and body better than soul. You dare to neglect God's greatest gift, His own incarnate Son, You are cold about that subject which fills all heaven with hallelujahs. And so long as this is the case, you belong to the worthless part of mankind. You are the chaff of the earth. Let this thought be graven deeply in the mind of every reader of this paper, whatever else he forgets. Remember, there are only two sorts of people in the world. There are wheat and there are chaff. There are many nations in Europe. Each differs from the rest. Each has its own language, its own laws, its own peculiar customs. But God's eye divides Europe into two great parties, the wheat and the chaff. There are many classes in England. There are peers and commoners, farmers and shopkeepers, masters and servants, rich and poor. But God's eye only takes account of two orders, the wheat and the chaff. There are many and various minds in every congregation that meets for religious worship. There are some who attend for a mere form, and some who really desire to meet Christ. Some who come there to please others, and some who come to please God. Some who bring their hearts with them and are not soon tired, and some who leave their hearts behind them and reckon the whole service weary work. But the eye of the Lord Jesus only sees two divisions in the congregation, the wheat and the child. There were millions of visitors to the great exhibition of 1851 from Europe, Asia, Africa and America. From north and south and east and west, crowds came together to see what skill and industry could do. Children of our first father, Adam's family, who had never seen each other before, for once met face to face under one roof. But the eye of the Lord only saw two companies thronging that large palace of glass, the wheat and the chaff. I know well the world dislikes this way of dividing, professing Christians. The world tries hard to fancy there are three sorts of people and not two. To be very good and very strict does not suit the world. They cannot, will not be saints. To have no religion at all does not suit the world. It would not be respectable. Thank God they will say we are not so bad as that, but to have religion enough to be saved and yet not go into extremes to be sufficiently good and yet not be peculiar to have a quiet easy-going moderate kind of Christianity and go comfortably to heaven after all this is the world's favorite idea there is a third class a safe middle class the world fancies and In this middle class, the majority of men persuade themselves they will be found. I denounce this notion of a middle class as an immense and soul-ruining delusion. I warn you strongly not to be carried away by it. It is as vain an invention as the Pope's purgatory. It is a refuge of lies, a castle in the air. A Russian ice palace, a vast unreality, an empty dream. This middle class is the class of Christians nowhere spoken of in the Bible. There were two classes in the day of Noah's flood. Those who were inside the ark and those who were without. Two in the parable of the gospel net. Those who are called the good fish and those who are called the bad. Two in the parable of the ten virgins, those who are described as wise and those who are described as foolish. Two in the account of the judgment day, the sheep and the goats. Two sides of the throne, the right hand and the left. Two abodes when the last sentence has been passed, heaven and hell. And just so, there are only two classes in the visible church on earth. Those who are in the state of nature, and those who are in the state of grace. Those who are in the narrow way, and those who are in the broad. Those who have faith, and those who have not faith. Those who have been converted, and those who have not been converted. Those who are with Christ and those who are against Him. Those who gather with Him and those who scatter abroad. Those who are wheat and those who are chaff. And to these two classes the whole professing church of Christ may be divided. Besides these two classes there is none. See now what cause there is for self-inquiry. Are you among the wheat or among the chaff? Neutrality is impossible. Either you are in one class or in the other. Which is it of the two? You attend church, perhaps. You go to the Lord's table. You like good people. You can distinguish between good preaching and bad. You think popery false and oppose it warmly. You think Protestantism true and support it cordially. You subscribe to religious societies. You attend religious meetings. You sometimes read religious books. It is well. It is very well. It is good. It is all very good. It is more than can be said of many, but still, this is not a straightforward answer to my question. Are you wheat or are you chaff? Have you been born again? Are you a new creature? Have you put off the old man and put on the new? Have you ever felt your sins and repented of them? Are you looking simply to Christ for pardon and life eternal? Do you love Christ? Do you serve Christ? Do you loathe heart sins and fight against them? Do you long for perfect holiness? And hollow hard after it. Have you come out of the world? Do you delight in the Bible? Do you wrestle in prayer? Do you love Christ's people? Do you try to do good to the world? Are you vile in your own eyes and willing to take the lowest place? Are you a Christian in business and on weekdays and by your own fireside? Oh, think, think, think on these things, and then perhaps you will be better able to tell the state of your soul. I beseech you not to turn away from my question, however unpleasant it may be. Answer it, though it may prick your conscience and cut you to the heart. Answer it, though it may prove you in the wrong and expose your fearful danger. Rest not. Rest not till you know how it is between you and God. Better a thousand times find out that you are in an evil case and repent betimes, then live on in uncertainty and be lost eternally. two let me show in the second place the time when the two great classes of mankind shall be separated. The text at the beginning of this paper foretells a separation. It says that Christ shall one day do to his professing church what the farmer does to his corn. He shall winnow and sift it. He shall thoroughly purge his floor. And then the wheat and the chaff shall be divided. There is no separation yet. Good and bad are now all mingled together in the visible church of Christ. Believers and unbelievers, converted and unconverted, holy and unholy, all are to be found now among those who call themselves Christians. They sit side by side in our assemblies. They kneel side by side in our pews. They listen side by side to our sermons. They sometimes come up side by side to the Lord's table and receive the same bread and wine from our hands. But it shall not always be so. Christ shall come the second time with His fan in His hand. He shall purge His church even as He purified the temple. And then the wheat and the chaff shall be separated and each shall go to its own place. Eh? Before Christ comes... Separation is impossible. It is not in man's power to effect it. There lives not the minister on earth who can read the hearts of everyone in his congregation. About some he may speak decidedly, he cannot about all. Who have oil in their lamps and who have not, who have grace as well as profession and who have profession only and no grace. Who are children of God and who of the devil? All these are questions which in many cases we cannot accurately decide. The winnowing fan is not put into our hands. Grace is sometimes so weak and feeble that it looks like nature. Nature is sometimes so plausible and well-dressed that it looks like grace. I believe we... Should many of us have said that Judas was as good as any of the apostles, and yet he proved a traitor? I believe we should have said that Peter was a reprobate when he denied his Lord, and yet he repented immediately and rose again. We are but fallible men. We know in part, and we prophesy in part. 1 Corinthians 13.9 We scarcely understand our own hearts. It is no great wonder if we cannot read the hearts of others. But it will not always be so. There is one coming who never errs in judgment and is perfect in knowledge. Jesus shall purge his foe. Jesus shall sift the chaff from the wheat. I wait for this. Till then I will lean to the side of charity in my judgments. I would rather tolerate much chaff in the church than cast out one grain of wheat. He shall soon come who has his fan in his hand, and then the certainty about everyone shall be known. B. Before Christ comes, it is useless to expect to see a perfect church. There cannot be such a thing. The wheat and the chaff in the present state of things will always be found together. I pity those who leave one church and join another because of a few false and unsound members. I pity them because they are fostering ideas which can never be realized. I pity them because they are seeking that which cannot be found. I see chaff everywhere. I see imperfections and infirmities of some kind in every communion on earth. I believe there are few tables of the Lord, if any, where all the communicants are converted. I often see loud-talking professors exalted as saints. I often see holy and contrite believers set down as having no grace at all. I am satisfied if men are too scrupulous They may go fluttering about like Noah's dove all their days and never find rest. Does any reader of this paper desire a perfect church? You must wait for the day of Christ's appearing. Then, and not till then, you will see a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Ephesians 5.27 Then, and not till then, the four will be purged. See, before Christ comes, it is vain to look for the conversion of the world. How can it be if He is to find wheat and chaff side by side in the day of His second coming? I believe some Christians expect that missions will fill the earth with the knowledge of Christ, and that little by little sin will disappear, and a state of perfect holiness gradually glide in. I cannot see with their eyes. I think they are mistaking God's purposes and sowing for themselves bitter disappointment. I expect nothing of the kind. I see nothing in the Bible or in the world round me to make me expect it. I have never heard of a single congregation entirely converted to God in England or Scotland or of anything like it. And why am I to look for a different result from the preaching of the gospel in other lands? I only expect to see a few raised up as witnesses to Christ in every nation, some in one place and some in another. Then I expect the Lord Jesus will come in glory with His fan in His hand, and when He has purged His floor and not tilled Him, His kingdom will begin no separation, and no perfection till Christ comes. This is my creed. I am not moved when the infidel asks me why all the world is not converted if Christianity is really true. I answer, it was never promised that it would be so in the present order of things. The Bible tells me that believers will always be few, that corruptions and divisions and heresies will always abound, and that when my Lord returns to earth, He will find plenty of chaff. No perfection till Christ comes. I am not disturbed when men say, Make all the people good Christians at home before you send missionaries to the heathen abroad. I answer, If I am to wait for that, I may wait forever. When we have done all at home, The church will still be a mixed body. It will contain some wheat and much chaff. But Christ will come again. Sooner or later there shall be a separation of the visible church into two companies, and fearful shall that separation be. The wheat shall make up one company, the
1: chaff shall make up another.